begin a 14-week series with some stops along the way. In Ephesians chapter 1 through 5, we're going to kind of go over into uh, chapter 6 a little bit. We just concluded our series in spiritual warfare, which began in verse 10 of chapter 6. So now we, we back it up and we go back to the, to the beginning of a book which many have said is paralleled only by the book of Romans as far as its theological depth and, uh, and its practicality. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and I, I really do believe that these messages will prove for some to be a seminal moment when our prayer, my prayer, is that some things, maybe for the first time, will begin to fall in place in your heart and in your mind like never before. Well, in The Born Identity, Matt Damon, who plays Jason Bourne, he's a CIA agent who's uh, suffered amnesia, and he's trying to figure out just exactly who he is. And he's in the mountains of Switzerland, and Jason hitches a ride to Germany with a young woman by the name of Marie, and he's running from the police. But he doesn't know why he's running from the police. He just knows he is. And he tries to keep quiet about his situation until finally he's so frustrated that he just let it spills out. And in response to her asking a very simple question, he turns to her and he says in desperation, I don't know who I am, and I don't know where I'm going. Watch the screen. We find out later, and in subsequent movies, The Born Supremacy, Born Ultimatum, Born Legacy, Jason Born, uh, two years ago, that something happened to Jason Born. A trauma happened to him that caused him to forget who he was, and so he's running all over the world, and he's trying to find answers to that question. Now, I was thinking this morning, I said, uh, I hope... You know, he does eventually find all the answers to his questions because if they make another movie, it should be called Born Again. Yeah, that's, I think that's what it should be, right? I was thinking about that. Very good, Doug. I thought I was the only brilliant person here, but we have at least one other. Now, listen, uh, this is what I've found. And again, a lot of times I say, this is, when I say this is what I've found, uh, it's just my own experience living on this earth and, and what I have experienced and what I have seen. I have found that many people, in fact, I'd be willing to go and say most people are running from something. They're running away from something for the most part. And a lot of times, they don't even know what it is. They're really not sure. They have some, sometimes an idea, it was this, it was that, but you know what? It, when they look at it individually, they go, you know what, but this doesn't make, none of this really makes that much sense why I'm running. They just know that they have this deep, knowing, often incapacitating uh, insecurity, and they're running to somewhere whose destination is as big a mystery as to why they're running. They just don't know. Here's the thing. Christians run too. Christians run too. But here is the difference between the believer and the non-believer. We don't have to run. In fact, I would say with a high a very high degree of confidence that if you find out and embrace who you are, you will never run again. The problem is that sometimes Christians don't know who they are, either because they've never been taught or because they just have plain old forgotten. And the problem is that when we forget who we are, we'll be subject to the same deep insecurities that cause people to run who have absolutely no faith at all. Same insecurities. Knowing who you are will make all the difference in the world to you. Because when you know who you are, you could start becoming who you, are, you were always meant 
to be. Now, this series is about finding out who we are so that we could be everything that we were meant to be. Because when we do find out who we are and when we embrace that, not just intellectually, but when we start to embrace it with our hearts, that truth, Paul says that we will never do marriage again the same way. We will never do parenting again, or we will, in the midst of parenting, we will change the way we parent. Uh, Our friendships will begin to take on a richness and and a give and take that will fill you instead of exhausting you. Don't some of your friendships exhaust you? Honestly, okay? Don't look at anybody, but just, I mean, you can just say yes. They do sometimes, right? You're going you're gonna to be an indifferent, a different employer. You'll be in different, different employees, a different boss, a different citizen. And I'm not overreaching by saying this, that your life will change when you find out who you are. Because when you find out who you are, you will, for the very first time, begin to be what you were always meant to be. See, I think that's the whole message of the book of Ephesians. So, let's begin. The letter to Ephesians was written by the great apostle Paul, who in all likelihood was in prison in Rome at the time that he penned the letter. And the letter is really very neatly, uh, it's almost never like this, but it's very neatly divided into two equal sections. The first section is a doctrinal section. It's chapters 1 through 3, and basically it answers the question, who am I? What's true about me? What's true about Christ's followers? And then he goes into the practical section, which is chapters 4, 5, and 6. So, this is true about me, chapters 1 through 3. So, it should affect my relationships with other Christians, with the world, with my spouse, with my parents, in this way, chapters 4, 5, and 6. So, Christian, what are the things that Paul says God has done for you, done for me and us, that will enable us to live the kind of life and to see the kind of things happen in our lives that we always really wanted to see happen. What are those things? Well, as we look this morning, I think there are three main things that Paul mentions in the passage that Lee read for us. He's chosen us, he's redeemed us, and he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Now, in verses 3 through 14, you don't see it in, in the NIV or King James or whatever version you, you, know, you read and have before you. It's one long run-on sentence. I think, if I'm not, I, I was trying to uh, kind of remember, I didn't have time to really check it out, but I was trying to remember, I think this is the longest run-on sentence in the whole New Testament. It goes from verse 3 to verse 14. And, you know, Paul is a master of going here, there, and everywhere. William Barclay, a commentator that I, I love to read, uh, said that it's so long and so complicated because it represents not so much a reasoned statement. Paul is not going A, B, sub point one, two. He wasn't doing that so much, but he, he was doing uh, verses 3 through 14 as sort of, he said, a lyrical song of praise. In other words, we just sang, Josh was up here, we're singing, which was, by the way, my heart was touched. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because I'm in the place. I'm sitting there and I'm going, I, don't, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else right now. Anyway, that's, I digress. But anyway, so, so 3 through 14, he's saying that, you know what, this is like a, a song of praise. When you write songs of praise, it's almost like you just blah. You just, it's, just, it's just everything's coming out all at once. And he's not trying to make a sequential argument. He's not trying to make logical stages. But he said, gift after gift 
and wonder after wonder was at that moment passing before the eyes of Paul. And you know what? I kind of think he's right. He just goes on and on and on. And listen, when, when you're praising and you have a very clear vision of God and, he, and the Holy Spirit is touching your heart and he's speaking to you in a very deep way, it starts to pour out on the page and Paul's head was basically exploding as he's writing from this prison cell and he's so excited and he's so captivated by what he's saying. He doesn't have time for commas and periods and, and paragraph indentations. He just didn't have time for that. He just kept writing. So after the normal greeting to the saints in verses 1 and 2, that's not so different than other epistles, he says in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And from that verse on, he starts to run. He starts to sprint. And, 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 and he writes as fast and as furiously as his fingers can move that stylus across that parchment paper before him. And he's telling the Ephesian Christians how God has so richly blessed him and how God has so richly blessed them. So everything that he speaks about in these verses are really just turning him to wonder and awe and thanksgiving and praise. And when he finally does take a breath, and it's not at the, at the end of verse 14. If you, we're going to see. You know where it is? It's in the middle of chapter 3. When he finally does take a breath in chapter 3 and verse 14, this is what he says. He says, for all things that he said, that he had just said, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. For everything that I had just written to you, for all the amazing truths about who we are as Christians, I, here's my response, one response, I fall to my knees. I don't even know what to say. I don't even know the words. I don't know if the posture is this proper only to be on my knees before the Father. But that's the response when he gets to the end of himself. When he finally comes up for air. He's on his knees. Have you ever truly, literally, been on your knees in thanksgiving and awe of what God has done for you? I think if you never have, it's because you probably don't get it. That's what this series is about. Trying to collectively, as the Crossing Church, get it. What sort of things would cause this great apostle to fall on those gnarled, scarred, arthritic, arthritic knees? What sort of things that he fell to his knees for, should affect us in the same way. Well, the first blessing that he states is there in verse 4. In verse 4, Paul emphatically states that you, Christian, have been chosen by God. Verse 4 says this, For he chose him, he chose us in him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. And of all the blessings, of all the comfort he could think of receiving by the truths that he has embraced as to his, as to his identity, you know, he mentions this one first, which is amazing. Of all the things he could have said of how glorious it is to be a son of God, he mentions the fact that he was God's choice first and foremost. It's the first thing he mentions, which I think uh, is, is, is amazing, which makes it an amazing doctrine, and yet... 
It's a doctrine, folks, that if you've been around long enough, it's one that has been so misunderstood and has even caused division and has become a stumbling block to some, causing some Christians to literally doubt the pristine nature of the character of God, which the Apostle Paul would have been, folks, not only truly astounded, but he would have been heartbroken to know. Paul's not starting off with this most wondrous doctrine of choice, of election, of calling, because he says, well, you know what? This is going to be the toughest one. Nobody's going to agree with this, but I'm going to get it out there. This is something that he puts forth. and I think that's when he initially was thrown to his knees, when he started writing about God's choice of him. Because it was the one that gave him the most comfort. It was the one that was most exhilarating. It was the one that gave him the most security, even in a prison cell. Now, it, we're going to come back to this throughout the series. So, so you got, eh, well, you know what, he didn't talk about this. We, we may, okay, we probably will as we go along. But there's a couple of things I want to say about uh, the doctrine of election or, or calling first. Number one, you can't get away from it. If you're, if you're reading this, you, can, you, just, it's, you just can't get away from it. Try as you may, you cannot get away from the doctrine of God's choice of believers. It is literally everywhere. You're reading Jeremiah. You know, you're reading about the weeping prophet. And, he's, and, and right at the beginning, right at the beginning of the book, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Moses preaching to, to, to the congregation For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples of the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. John 15, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Paul in Romans, same author, chapter 8 and verse 29 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Or John chapter 6. Wow, look at this one. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Draws them. Folks, it's everywhere in Scripture. You cannot miss it. Uh, that was just, I just threw a few out. It, 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 you know, it, it's like you, you, you go into the ShopRite parking lot. It's always a madhouse. It's like they're giving the stuff away. Uh, yesterday we were passing. I'm going, what is going on there? And it starts to rain, and you can't get a close parking space. So, you, it, you know, what do you do? You think that if you run really fast, maybe you won't get that wet, which science tells us, and I was looking at this, you're getting just as wet and maybe more wet as you run. It, it's really unbelievable. Um, But you think maybe if I run, I won't get so wet. Folks, you're getting wet. Unless you have an umbrella, you are getting really wet before you hit the entrance to the shop, right? It's everywhere. Everywhere. You can't miss it. You just can't. Second thing, can't fully explain it. Now, here is what, here's the main problem, all right? As soon as we hear the word chosen, this is, a lot of people, we start immediately th- having questions and objections in our mind. It's not, like, it's not like the Apostle Paul, I've been chosen by God. It's not that. It's like, uh, wait a minute now. Let's, let's back that truck up a little bit. And let's, let's look at that again. We start, you know, it's, it's because we say if we've been chosen by God, it's like going to Target at Christmas time and you're going to buy a fake tree and you look at this tree and you look at this tree and you go, well, uh, nah, nah, little, I'm going to take... 
I'm taking this. If it's like that, if I go in and it's like a commodity that I buy, then you know what? That means I've kind of rejected this one over here. And, and if that's the case, it's got to mean then that, well, God's not fair. That God is unfair. And since the whole idea of God choosing us is throughout the Bible, the doctrine has literally become, for some Christians, like a stone in their shoe. We start feeling good about things. You know, redemption, we're going to talk about it in a minute. Oh, you know, God loves me. But it's really good. I get it. I'm, I'm try- All of a sudden, you come across, upon a verse. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And it's like, all of a sudden, you go, oh, nuts. I was just starting to agree with this stuff. And now we got this. It's become like a stone in their shoe. And one of the reasons that we don't like it is that we have long been under the mistaken notion that we chose him, not that he chose us. So let me say what Paul is saying as clearly and as unambiguously as I can. You cannot make yourself a Christian. You can't. If you ask a lot of people how they became a Christian, this is what you're going to say. How did you become a Christian? Well, they're going to say, well, one day I heard the gospel and I decided to follow Christ. And from a human standpoint, from a human's point of view, that's exactly what happened. But Paul in this chapter is giving us two views. And the first view, when he talks about calling, is from on top. It's from God's perspective looking down. Think about it. Why do you think that you trusted in Christ? Christian, why do you think that you trusted Christ? How did it come about? Well, you say, it came about because I admitted I was a sinner. I humbled myself, and I asked God to forgive my sins. Good answer. Now, let me ask you something else. Why did you admit that you were a sinner? Why did you humble yourself? Why did you ask for God's mercy and God's pardon? And this is what I have discovered. Sooner or later, you have to come to one or two conclusions. There's only two, and you got to choose one or the other. Either you say, well, I guess I was a bit smarter when when the gospel came to me, maybe a bit more open. No, 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 I'm not going to say smart. I'm going to say a bit more open, okay? I'm, I'm kind of an open person, somewhat more willing to humble myself, a tad bit uh, more spiritually sensitive than my neighbor, you either have to say that or you have to say God did something in my heart and God did something in my mind and he opened me up to the truth and it was far beyond what I ever could have done myself. It is one or the other. There is no happy medium. Now here's the thing. The first option is absurd. The Bible says it's absurd. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. That's that's kind of emphatic. Would you you say? Am I I exaggerating? No one. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 9, he said this, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Look at 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and what he was, was a saved man. By the grace of God, you cannot make yourself a Christian. You did not make yourself a Christian. And let me go one step further. 
So some of you who are kind of uncomfortable, even a little mad at me, let me, let me, let me get you so that you're going to throw something at me right now, okay? I'm going to go one step further. You can't even want to be a Christian unless God begins to open up your heart. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, we're going to get to it in two weeks. As for you, you were dead, necros in the Greek, which is used for a corpse. For as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And then he says just a couple of verses later, four verses later in Ephesians 2, 5. uh, But you were made alive. But you were made alive. And somebody on the outside came in to this corpse who was dead spiritually and made it alive. That's what he's saying. You were dead before God made you alive. There was no life. There was no pulse. There was no seeking. There simply was no interest. It's not like, you know, I hate God. No, it's just like, who cares? How many times you, how many times do you come upon people like that? I'll never forget years ago. I was, you know, I was just starting to come alive to the things of God. I was about 19 years old. I was working at Fortune Offs on Long Island. And I was, you know, telling people, you know, sharing the gospel. And there was one really nice girl who I worked with. She was so nice. And I remember, I'll never forget her look staring at me. I was like, that's, that's really nice. Almost like, you're out, of, you're out of your mind. You've kind of lost things. But, that's, but you know what? It's, it, that's okay. It's good for you. You know, if you, if you want to live in this fairyland world, that's fine. You know what? Uh, but don't, please, not. You know, and I'm looking, and I thought about her this week. And I said, you know what? She didn't get it because she's dead. Because she's dead. If the reason that you were a Christian is because you considered things and you chose God, then the explanation must be that you are better than mo- at people who don't. You've got to be better. See, according to Scripture, number one is not an option. If you believe you chose God, then you could never, ever, ever say what Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You just will never be able to say it. So our coming to him is a result of something he did for us to literally clear the way. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. See, the Father has to open a path. The Father has to open our hearts. The Father has to give you even the desire. The Father has to let you see the way that you should go, which eliminates, by the way, all pride and every morsel of uh, superiority. And you know what we're left with? We're left with chapter 3 and verse 14, awe and wonder and amazement on our knees. That's what we're left with. Folks, the Bible doesn't say a human being can't choose God. The Bible teaches a human being doesn't want to choose God. Not that you are incapable of choosing, but you are incapable of wanting it. You got a lion. I love people who try to tame lions, and then you find out, well, I it's sad, but then they get eaten by the, you know, you see stuff like that, right? It's like, uh, there's something, uh, you know, there's something in life. For everyone where you see that video where the lion, you know, comes up and you, you see one coming out and just ripping their, you know, kind of ripping their heads off because that's, that's, what, that's what they are. But could you imagine having a lion in front of you and you got this wonderful, uh, beautiful omelet? You know, Mary and I went to, went to uh, on Friday, my day off, we went to uh, uh, Pancake House and they make these nice Beautiful. They're just beautiful omelets over there. And they got a little, little pancakes. They got three pancakes on the side and everything, you know. And, and so I, I'm looking at this omelet, 
And I'm thinking this week, if you took an omelet like that, even from the pancake house, and you put it in front of a lion, and then you took a huge hunk of raw meat and put it in front of the lion on the other side, just a few feet apart, 1,000 times out of 1,000 times, the lion will choose which? Will choose the raw meat over the omelet. He's a carnivore, and he will never, ever, ever, never choose the omelet. Never. Can he? Yes, he can. Will he? Never. When the Bible says you cannot come unless the Father draws you, that doesn't mean you can't. It means you won't. It means you don't want him. You can't want him unless he opens your eyes. I read uh, read a great illustration from Tim Keller this week. And he says, you know what, it's like there's 20 guys, and uh, they're, they're, they're walking along and uh, uh, down, you know, down a pathway, and they're all blindfolded. They're all blindfolded, they're blind, tightly, they can't see anything, there's no light, nothing. And they're walking down this ramp, and at the end of the ramp, people get to the end, and they take one more step, and they fall over into a furnace, which is kind of, it's kind of a gross thing, but I mean, and they die. They fall into a furnace. So somebody's standing on the side, he sees this. You got these people, you got 20 guys lined up, and one goes, and another goes, and another goes. And finally, he just, he just runs up to the guy in front of the line. He says, bro, wait a minute. You're walking into a furnace. You take one more step, you're going to die. So the guy listens to him. He's got the blindfold on. And he says, die? That's ridiculous. We're on our way to Miami Beach. We can't wait to begin soaking up the rays. We're sick of, you know, like marches in New Jersey, the end of March where it's 40 degrees and drizzling. We know we're getting closer too. You know why? Because it's getting warmer. We can feel it. (laughs) The Bible says the doctrine of God's ultimate choice is that God comes to you and he pulls the blindfold off. He pulls it off, and all of a sudden, you look around, and you say, wait a minute. I'm not going to Miami Beach. I'm going to my death. Don't you remember? Listen, don't you remember if you're a Christian? Can't you recall when you went to that meeting, you went, you went to a seminar, you read a pamphlet, you went to a church service, you were reading through a portion of Scripture, you were listening to a very, you realize now, a very uneven kind of uh, uh, presentation of the gospel by a friend of yours, well-meaning, loving uh, friend, and, and they're, 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 they're talking to you about the gospel, and all of a sudden, bu- 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 everything made sense, and it all came together. And for the first time in your life, Christian, for the first time in your life, you said, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It was as if someone pulled the blindfold off your eyes. Guess what? Someone did. People sometimes say that the doctrine of election, God's choice of us, eliminates free will. What it's really saying, though, is that God jumped in and gave people their minds back for the very first time. He pulled off the blindfold. He removed the scales from their eyes so that for the very first time, they could see. So, why doesn't God pull the blindfold off of everyone's eyes? 
I'm asking you. I, that's a question for you, you know, because I got to tell you, you know, I, I, I've looked at this. Uh, uh, why doesn't he save everybody? He's all-powerful. Is he all-powerful? Yes. Why doesn't God save everybody? You know, I've done a lot of reading. I've gone twist, and I turned, and, I, and, I, and I've sweated over this. And here's, here's my answer. I don't know. That's my best answer that I can give you. I just don't know. The only thing I do know is that he has a reason he chose me. And I feel like Paul, the least of these. So it's certainly not because I'm better than anyone else. That much I do know. Do you know why Paul mentions this doctrine first? Do you know why he got so excited about it? Because God's choice of him said one thing. He knew it. He knew what it meant. God's choice of him meant that God had loved Paul from the foundation of the world and before the world even began. God loved Paul. God, before the creation of the first man and woman, Christian, saw you. God saw you and loved you and chose you to be a part of his family. And, you know, when I was wandering around in sin and confusion, when I was rooting around the garbage dumps of life, he was waiting and knowing that one day it was all going to click. He knew that. You may be sitting here and going, well, how do I know? I mean, how, how do I know? How can I know if I am chosen by God? Let me ask you a question. Do you want to know? Do you want to know? Do you want this? If you say yes, I think that means that God must be working in your heart. Because the Bible says that you don't want God unless he's working in your heart. If you say, I do want this, I do want this, I do want this, I am reasonably sure that you are chosen by God. Because you could not, according to the scriptures I read, you could not possibly want it otherwise. You can't say, well, I want this, but how do I know God's going to accept me? My answer is this. If you want it, it means he's already accepted you. So come. Come. Take the next step. Paul says the next step is right here. He said, we as Christians have not only been chosen, we have been redeemed. Verse 7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Ephesus had one of the largest slave markets in the Roman world. In the marketplace at Ephesus, you could buy spices from the east, you could buy purple cloth from Theatira, the latest fashions from Rome, and you can go to the marketplace and you could buy people. You could buy human beings to own. And Paul came and he spent two and a half years of his life in the hub of the slave trade of the ancient world. And I was thinking about this this morning deeply. What a traumatic experience. I, could you imagine... Being, being put up on a block and someone bartering to own you. 
it's, it's almost, uh, I can't think of too many more degrading things. I really can't. And knowing that once you were sold, you have given up not only your freedom, but any hope of ever earning your way to freedom. Folks, Christianity is not about doing enough good things so that God finally likes you. God buys us. He redeems us through Jesus hanging there on the cross. In him, we have redemption through the blood and forgiveness of sins. God does not want to punish you for the wrong, your wrongs because guess what? Someone already took that punishment. Someone already took our guilt upon himself. Do you know what happened at the cross? Paul was writing to a culture where people were bought and sold, and he says, look, do you know that somebody bought you? Do you know what that means? It means you're someone's child. It means someone has received you. Someone has paid for you. And now he's going about the restoration process of his chosen one. See, he buys us, and then he brings us into his home, and he begins to restore us. In September of 1975, an angry, angry man rushed through the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam until he reached Rembrandt's famous painting, Night Watch. Took out a knife and slashed it again and again and again before he could be stopped. And there, at, at the foot of the frame, and when he was done, were large pieces of the canvas on the museum floor. Not long before that, a distraught, hostile man slipped into St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome with a hammer, and he began to smash Michelangelo's stunning sculpture, the Pieta. Two terrible criminal acts that, you know what, when you looked at it, it looked like some crazy people had robbed the world of the work of two of the greatest art geniuses that we had ever known. Well, after the initial shockwave passed, over the community, especially the art community. The, the, the reaction was interesting. The reaction was not, well, that's that. We can't, we can't display this junk anymore. You know, we got to move on, bring the next guy. There was not, that, that was not, never even a question. That was not even a thought. To do that would have been unthinkable. No, instead, you know what they did? The experts, the next morning, in the case of the, the, uh, 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 the painting, the next morning, they picked up the pieces, they brought them to a special place, and they started to put the pieces back together. They did the same thing with the statue. I mean, Mary's head was knocked clean off her shoulders by that guy with, with the hammer. And, and before long, with everybody planning and restoring the destruction that had been done, you couldn't even tell anything had been, had been done. It had been fully reconstructed using the best experts with the utmost, uh, utmost care, precision work, they redeemed those priceless treasures from the refuse pile that would have been their fate, as, if, as it has been for countless and thousands of other works of art at that time, and through thievery and through criminal acts and war. And after a long and tedious, a tedious uh, process, as I said, there was virtually no evidence of vandalism. God was not content to leave that which we, he had created for good to remain forever damaged. He took us. He redeemed us. He brought us into his family. 
and he wasn't going to let, let us remain destroyed and remain decimated. Satan was not going to win. That was never an option. Never. Instead, that same day, he began the meticulous, painful work to save creation and to bring glory to himself and to make it possible that his chosen ones could have their blindfolds removed so that they could see clearly. You know, the Old Testament shows us how we all have something seriously wrong with us. Starts at the very beginning. You know, we need help. The trail of millions of slain animals on, on, on thousands and thousands of bloody altars tips us off to that truth. But it also tells us that one day, right back in the garden, someone was going to come who would give us the help we so desperately need. Well, the New Testament tells us his name. Jesus Christ lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died, showing me that all at the same time, that I am more valuable than I ever imagined, more loved than I could ever hope for. And he gave me this incredible, profound, ultimately infinite price God did of his son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for my sin. God paid it for me. I said that God's choice of us was a picture from God's end. This is the photo from our end. We must determine to turn from our sin and turn towards him to save us. God then and forever looks at us. We say a lot of times here, through what kind? Through Christ-colored glasses. And he doesn't look at Peter and John and Sue and Mary anymore. When he looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ and he sees those, those sins already paid for. There's no double jeopardy, you know? Already, we are, we are innocent in the eyes of God because of what Jesus Christ did. He paid the penalty for our sin. A son who never sinned once, never had a time of rebellion, never grieved his father's heart a single moment. He's the one we worship. He is our Savior. One more, and I'm, just, I'm running through this. I'm basically just going to mention, okay? One other thing. We've been sealed with the Spirit. We've been sealed with the Spirit. Verse 13 says this, When you believed, you were marked with him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The seal is a mark of ownership. Uh, uh, they used to take paper documents. I got a wedding invitation recently. I, did. I thought it was so cool. And there was you know, wax in the back. And they, if it was an official document, it, there was wax in the back. And you would press the family crest or the king's crest, leaving an indentation. And when the wax dried, it made a seal. And that seal marked the ownership of that document. And they, they couldn't do that. Like, okay, great. So th this important document, you know, I own the title to the house. Right, let's, you know, we, we seal it. And we, what do you do with, like, livestock and stuff? Well, what they used to do is what they do today. What do they do? They brand them. They put the, 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 this, whatever the seal is, the, the, you know, whatever the brand look, they, they put it and they, they burn it in to the skin with a hot iron. You know what it is? It's a, it's, a, it's a mark of ownership, too. In the movie Gladiator, Maximus, played by Russell Crowe, has four letters tattooed on his arm. Next time you're doing, th you're doing this and Gladiator comes on, you'll see it, you know, because I always, oh, it's Gladiator, I'll stop, I'm going to watch this for 10 minutes, you know what? And you'll see on his arm, he has four letters, S-P-Q-R. 
they marked him as a Roman soldier for the emperor. It meant that he was in the emperor's service. Soldiers were tattooed. Captives and slaves, they were branded. Paul is writing to this kind of culture, a culture in which people are literally sealed to show who owns them, who have been purchased. And he's he's using this as, as an illustration and as a picture. And Paul is saying, don't you realize that when you came to believe, you received God's seal upon your life. And that seal is a promise. The seal is God, God's Holy Spirit who whispers to us and says, you're mine, you're mine, I've adopted you, you're mine. And when you know who you are, you can, for the first time in your life, start becoming what you were always meant to be. You're in a dating relationship. You were sure it was heading for marriage, but it's not. And it broke. And you're broke. And you're lonely. And you come to Jesus. And you know what? You will hear his whisper. You're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. There is a relationship that is greater than any relationship on this earth. You know, you go into the hill up north and New Jersey now, you know, it's starting to turn the leaves and everything, and it's like, wow. And you see the orange and the yellow and the reds, and they're bursting, and God stirs something in you. There is something transcendent, and you know it was God that made you feel this, and you know that you didn't have to look at it and just praise, but you do, and you explode, and you hear, I made this for you. You're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. You find yourself in a funeral home visitation. You weren't ready to lose this person, you're crushed, you're broken, in tears and grief. And you hear the whisper, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. Again and again. This doesn't make the sadness go away, but it can become a grief with hope rather than a grief with despair. Amen? When you know who you are, you can start becoming who you were always meant to be. You no longer need to run. You're not Jason Bourne. You're no longer confused. You're no longer frightened. You begin to act deliberately, not just go through the motions of living. When I remember that I'm loved, I, I, I serve differently. When I remember that I'm loved and I've been sacrificed for, I love differently. When I remember who I am, I give differently. When I remember who I am, I live differently. Knowing our primary identity as sons and daughters of God, bought by the blood of Christ, we will know the freedom that we long for and we will stop running. Because when you know who you are, you can finally and forever start becoming.